Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hi everyone, this is Jacob Hamburger. Welcome to the Tocqueville 21 podcast. I'm here today speaking with Deepak Bargava and Ruth Milkman, who are professors at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Along with their colleague Penny Lewis, Deepak and Ruth are the editors of the recent collection Immigration Matters, Movements, Visions, and Strategies for a Progressive Future. The book uh, was released this past spring and is now out in paperback. It's an ambitious and intellectually rigorous book that aims to provide a left-wing vision of immigration policy for the 21st century. It's an answer to the virulent anti-immigrant vision animating Donald Trump and the right wing in the United States today. We touch on a lot in this conversation, but particularly on how pro-immigrant movements can join the fight against anti-democratic currents in contemporary U.S. politics. I'm very excited about this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Many, many thanks to Shane McLaurin for uh, fixing some of my uh, technical ineptitudes. Uh, Shane's the podcast producer in addition to being the regular host. So without further ado, here's Deepak Barkava and Ruth Milkman. All right, so uh, Deepak Bargava and Ruth Milkman, welcome to Tocqueville 21. Uh, very excited to discuss your book, Immigration Matters. And I think I just wanted to get started by asking you, I know this, this is maybe a, a big way to start off, but you know, the, the book has a very ambitious aim. It's to basically provide a left or progressive vision on immigration for the 21st century post-Trump. And there's, there's a lot in it. You touch on climate, you touch on labor, you touch on politics, you touch on movement building. And so I'm just curious to hear maybe for both, from both of you now, kind of what's the best way to kind of sum up how these parts make up a coherent whole? What is this vision for the 21st century? Yeah, well, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jacob. So I think the underlying argument of the book is that we've been stuck in a very narrow debate. And in the Trump years, it got narrower and narrower, where people on the progressive side were arguing what we were against and that instead we need a bold reimagining of a system that focuses on what we're for. And I think the overarching core argument of the book is that expanded immigration through a whole variety of channels, economic migrants, family migration, humanitarian migration, is a core element of what it will take for the country to succeed and prosper in the 21st century. So it kind of moves us away from a restrictionist frame that says immigration is a scarcity game about taking away from native-born people and into an expansive vision in which immigration is really a a national asset, national treasure, and needs to be expanded and built upon in dramatic ways in the coming years. Great. And um, Ruth, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I know. I think Deepak put it very well. I'll just add that I think one of the other themes that we pursue is a kind of reckoning with the earlier wave of progressive advocacy on immigration, which often was called comprehensive immigration reform. And implicit in that was a notion that there was a sort of trade-off between ramped up border enforcement on the one side to ensure that undocumented immigrants wouldn't rush to the border to enter the country in the face in the wake of immigration reform. And that only if that was accomplished, the thinking was, was it reasonable to do things like offer a path to citizenship for dreamers and so on. And our view is that that really is not a viable approach. And that what we've seen is that when you go that route, we get border enforcement without the reforms. And so um, the kind of expansive vision Deepak just summarized is, in our view, you know, a much more promising path. Right. And so, you know, in various points in the book, 
I know, Deepak, in your concluding essay, you, you touch on this pretty explicitly. You know, you sort of make the parallel to what the right has done, especially during the Trump years. Uh, and, you know, with people like Stephen Miller, who have really put a coherent right-wing ideology about immigration and the role it plays in our society. I and mean, some, there's some scary stuff that they get into, which you know, we, we can talk about. Uh, I, I imagine that you don't see this vision for immigration playing the same type of role. You're not posing a sort of counter ideology to great, great replacement theory or anything like that. So who's the intended audience for this? And what do you see the impact on them being from processing all, all of this information? Well, I really see it as, as, a, as building towards a North Star vision for what progressive immigration should look like uh, in this century. And so to me, that certainly starts with the rejection of the paradigm of racism and nativism that has dominated our policymaking for years. But as Ruth says, it also requires stepping outside the box of conventional mainstream, even democratic, capital D democratic thinking about immigration, which has really often posed this trade-off and this, this necessity to be cautious. And you see that play out in, uh, in my view, Biden's misguided policies with regard to first Central American migrants and now Haitian migrants at the US-Mexico border. That also is a paradigm that's run out of steam. The idea that toughness, quote unquote toughness, is a prerequisite for getting placed somewhere else. And the book really, by looking at the history and looking at labor markets, as Ruth's essay does, I think lays a predicate to say, we're in a new world that demands a very, very different, far-reaching, bold, ambitious vision. And to me, it's, it's akin to the kind of rethinking that's happening in economics, where we lived in the four walls of a neoliberal paradigm for decades and decades through Republican and Democratic administrations. And that ice has begun to thaw. And I think a similar kind of paradigm has confined our imagination on immigration. It's less widely understood. We're still living inside it. Both parties are still largely living inside it. So it attempts to kind of raise our view to the horizon line and say, what are we really shooting for? And what's the path? What's the practical path to get there? So the core audience is definitely um, people active in the immigrant movement, but it attempts to make a connection between immigration and everything else that's at stake, our democracy, our economy, et cetera, our politics. And so I hope it reaches a much wider audience. And... Uh, that includes some policymakers who are wrestling with how to solve for some very difficult challenges within that box. And the argument of the book is we actually have to step outside of the confines in order to solve those problems. You were asking, you know, why do we tackle it from so many different angles? And I think the answer to that is that it's a really complex area of policymaking and politics. And you know, we wanted people to think about all the different aspects of that, everything from implications for the labor market, implications for fighting back against climate change, um, et cetera. And so there is no one simple fix. It's complicated. And so I think that's the reason why, you know, we kind of come at it from a whole series of different approaches. I do have one other kind of conceptual question about this before before moving on, because I think there's, there's to some extent in the book, there's two, potentially two tendencies that you might say are in tension with one another. On the one hand, there's the idea of articulating a vision about immigration or for immigrants, and where the dominant paradigm, I think is clear, is trying to articulate a more inclusive vision, trying to think about what we can do to be as welcoming as possible to as many people 
who need to come here for all of these various reasons, who have a place here for all these various reasons. But then there, there, there are some other aspects which I don't think necessarily conflict, but I think there's a potential conflict. And I, I think Justin Guest's essay, I think, gets at this the, the most directly, where instead of thinking about it as necessarily a vision for immigrants, it's sort of, it's a larger political vision or a larger policy vision, and immigration has a role to play there, but potentially it's a more instrumental role. Potentially it's not one that is the most inclusive we could think of. Because I, I, I was struck by his essay in, in a book that is straightforwardly a progressive or left perspective. You know, his, his essay was actually calling for some version of what, what, what's been called the points-based system. And I, I don't think it's, really, it's necessarily a huge contradiction, but I think he's just making the point there that immigration policy as it is today just doesn't have, we don't have an overriding purpose for it. We're not using immigration to solve this or that problem or to get this or that outcome. So I just was curious to hear your thoughts on, on that tension, because I think there's there's potential for, I think, for that to clash with maybe the more expansive, the more inclusive, or I don't know if every author in the book would consider themselves advocates of open borders or of abolishing borders, or, you know, or the most expansive idea of immigration reform. But I think there's there's a potential clash between those two perspectives. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on on whether you think that's that's a possible conflict. Yeah, I think one of the the areas that's in most need of this rethink that we're talking about is future immigration. So the movement has been very focused on a path to citizenship for people who are already here, and that's been the kind of dominant axis of immigration politics. It's what the movement compels candidates for office to talk about. It's how Democrats understand their political mandate. And all the while, as we have not solved that problem, which urgently needs to be solved, the whole question of what about future migration and what levels and who should come under what conditions hasn't gotten aired out. And so part of the book's purpose really was to give that whole arena from a variety of perspectives, refugee policy, economic competitiveness, climate migration, to give it an airing. And so there are different approaches to it in the book, but I think the consistent point is an argument that immigration needs to be understood. Future immigration, a coherent vision, is a necessity to a broader progressive politics that you can't stop your answer with, um, yep, we should give, give a path to citizen, citizenship to everyone who's here, and then not have an answer to what's happening at the border today or what will happen in the years to come to the future flow, as it's sometimes called in the Beltway. So that's definitely a theme. And then I think another theme is that immigration is inextricably linked now to the broader social democratic project in this country, meaning it's been used by Trump and nativists as a weapon against progressive economic policies and other policies and coalitions that so getting the policy right isn't just kind of a nice thing to do for immigrants, that the larger social democratic project rests on getting that right. And that's not just true in the US, that's true in Europe and around the world, that the absence of that vision is a huge, huge vulnerability, even for people for whom immigration may not be their main, their main issue. Right, Th that sums up the point really well. And I think that that, that, can, that leads well into discussing kind of where the immigration debate is at now as we're getting close to a year into the Biden administration. And I think it's an interesting question because if I'm, if I'm correct, this book was mostly written, you know, obviously multiple authors contributing. So, uh, so this might have taken some, some amount of time, but, you know, the initial publication was, I think, was this past spring, if I'm correct. So a lot of the conception was going into the, in, was when there was still, you know, not, we weren't sure who was going to be in the White House. We weren't sure 
what a Biden administration would look like versus maybe another Democrat versus, and certainly versus a second Trump administration. So, um, you know, I, I, and I think it's interesting now because the way Biden turned out, there, there were a lot of good immigration policies in, the, in Biden's campaign promises and in the Democrats' uh, various proposed immigration bills. But then, as, as, as you both mentioned, uh, we still have Biden upholding Trump's Title 42 um, uh, closure of the southern border. Uh, we have the horrific images coming out, out, of, out of Texas, with, uh, where we have Border Patrol agents on horseback whipping Haitian migrants. And so I guess this maybe raises the question of to what extent, and you know, uh, you also have Pramila Jayapal writing, writing in your book, and, uh, and she clearly gets a lot of the stake, uh, stakes of what needs to be done and, and what the importance of doing it now. But I guess this sort of raises the question of you might have democratic politicians that understand the issue to a certain extent, but are either constrained in a certain way or this issue doesn't become a main priority for them. So um, I'm curious of, Either what, what do you think would have to go into this book if you were publishing it today, having seen Biden's administration, or also maybe what do you think are the limitations of articulating this vision, um, given, the, given the, the realities of the Democratic Party and the political system that we have today? Well, let me just say a little bit about where the whole project came from. We started out actually just as the pandemic was emerging, planning for a conference, a convening at which these issues would be discussed. And the premise was, well, the hope was that we would be talking about the post-Trump era, but you're right, we didn't know how the election would turn out. And of course, we didn't know for quite a while after that. So it was a little bit of a gamble. And then we decided to you know, do the book with the same kind of content. And I remember we were preparing it for the final publication and we sort of incorporated, you know, the last minute, um, the news that Trump was no longer the president. And, you know, we didn't, we really didn't know how that would come out. And we were thrilled because we thought at that time, especially after the election outcome was clear, you know, that there was going to be a serious conversation about immigration policy among, you know, not just among progressives, but in Washington, among the people who have the power to make it happen. And Unfortunately, that didn't materialize. Biden did do some important things at the very beginning of his administration, you know, reversing some of the Trump executives or most of the Trump executive orders that had been so draconian toward immigrants. And so that was good. But we haven't seen a whole lot since then, except, well, endlessly postponing um, a reckoning with the issue. And as you've already mentioned, these sort of flip-flopping about the border, about refugee policy and so on which is, I mean, I think everybody in the progressive community is quite disappointed about that. I guess there's still some hope that the conversation will begin eventually, but, you know, we don't know that. Um, still, I think the contents of the book are the right ones for whenever that conversation is possible and that political negotiation. It just might take a little longer than we had hoped. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Ruth. I mean, I think the book was really written with a decade-long kind of shelf life with the anticipation that untangling this gigantic knot that's operating not just at the level of policy, but at the level of politics, at the level of popular discourse, it's just going to take a while. And, um, you know, I think there's just a vast asymmetry between how Republicans and Democrats have operated on the issue. So for Republicans, um, and particularly Stephen Miller and the Trump White House, there was a really aggressive use of government to move public opinion, to highlight certain images of immigrants, to highlight a certain narrative about the immigrant threat narrative, essentially, and to drive a change in public understanding through government from the top down. 
And there was simultaneously a real effort to shrink the power of immigrant constituencies to make naturalization and citizenship harder and to embolden uh, nativists, unions of ICE and CBP workers, and so forth. So there's really this kind of very aggressive use of state power, both to build and take away more power and to level of consciousness. There's been no such effort yet on the part of Democrats. I think the hope is that over time, both outside movement actors will begin to redefine what's possible, the boundaries. And I think we are actually beginning to see that with how some of the backlash has unfolded to some of the, the Biden continuation of Trump policies. And also that there'll be some learning about how to use kind of a policy feedback approach on immigration for Democrats to build the predicate for going further and further incrementally. Because we're going to be in this for a while. And as Ruth says, I think this book kind of provides a roadmap to a decade's worth of transformation, which is which is really what the system needs. Maybe you can, both of you can summarize a little bit or give a couple examples. Uh, there's several excellent essays or interviews, essays by or interviews with uh, labor leaders and activist leaders who have um, really been leading the fight for legalization or immigrants' rights or the, the various angles that we want to look at policies benefiting immigrant communities. But maybe we can, we can just discuss a couple examples of the types of things. And, and Deepak, I think the concept in, in your essay of policy feedback loops is, is essential here. You know, the, the types of things that activists and organizers can do and can push for that are going to really build the, the political power of immigrants and their allies. Um, because I, I mean, I think what, you know, what our discussion, you know, just a moment ago is making clear is that it's not, it can't just come from democratic politicians, certainly not in the current moment. So I, I'd be interested in maybe just for our readers who, uh, haven't had a chance to, to, to see these, these pieces, uh, talking directly with the, the movement leaders, you know, if you could give us some examples of what types of things these have looked like in the recent past, and then what, what we can maybe expect to, to push us towards this sort of decade long conversation. I think it's helpful to to rewind the tape to to the late '90s, and and you know we just had the 1996 punitive welfare law, which took benefits away from legal immigrants. We had a horrendous '96 immigration law, which really is responsible for a significant share of the fact that people don't have papers today. And out of that, a kind of remarkable thing happened. It, it, almost nobody in the Beltway in the late '90s would have said legalization of millions of undocumented people was going to be a political priority. It was not inevitable from my point of view that that happened. And the book tells the story, many of the activists who, were, who played a fundamental role in moving that idea of a path to citizenship to the center of political discourse, they tell the story of how it was done. And I think there really were kind of three main elements to it. One of which was building support within key segments of society, within the labor movement, within uh, religious congregations, among community organizations, uh, civic organizations all over the country. So a broad-based social coalition that was going to stand up for a path to citizenship. A second element was the use of political power. Elisea Medina from SEIU and Dee Taylor from Unite Here talk about the transformations of California and then Nevada, now Arizona underway is really being a deliberate strategy to move politics uh, in a different direction. And then the third was really a strategy of, of culture change and consciousness change in the country. And Christina Jimenez from United We Dream talks about the instrumental role of immigrant youth 
in really forging a whole different story about who immigrants are in this country. So those three things have unfolded and they really have had a huge impact. The issue has not been resolved, but the Democratic Party is now united on the issue. And it's a matter of when the politics will align to allow it to happen, I think. Going forward, I think it's gonna take something pretty different and bigger than that. My view is the next phase for the movement is gonna require even more, more, even more ambitious plan because really what's required is building a political consensus in the country for admitting millions of people. And that will require an even broader and more powerful social movement uh, to build that kind of consensus in the Democratic Party, but really in the country at large. So um, we can draw from many of the lessons of the immigrant movement of the 90s and 2000s, uh, but even further to go. Right. Another issue, and I think this is something I really uh, wanted to pick both of your brains about, going back to the question of what's happened since, since the book was, was mainly written, how do we fight this war for, for democracy uh, against people who are both explicitly anti-immigrant and explicitly anti-democracy? So I think there is a lot to be learned from the history of how the labor movement has mobilized around this issue. As we mentioned in the book, until the late 90s, organized labor was at best divided on this question and parts of the labor movement were quite hostile to immigration and thought that immigrants were a threat rather than a group of workers that should be included in the labor movement. And that really changes in the course of the 90s for a couple of different reasons. You know, one is the, the success of the organizing efforts that did take place, which was an unexpected thing at the time. People thought, especially unauthorized immigrants, that it would be impossible to organize them. They'd be too scared, et cetera, et cetera. And that turned out to be completely wrong. That In fact, they became one of the shining stars of labor movement revitalization, such as it was. But the more crucial move was once having understood that, Organized labor then used its political arm to really make sure that immigrant union members and other people in the immigrant community, because immigrant union members, just like union members generally, is unfortunately a small minority, to make sure that people who were eligible for naturalization got naturalized, to make sure they registered to vote and to mobilize them at the polls. And that is exactly what changed California politics. We just saw it again with the attempt to recall Gavin Newsom, where Initially, the polls were looking like he might be recalled. And in the end, it was the Latino vote that, which was largely made up of new citizens, that saved the day, so to speak. And we've seen that over and over again. I mean, California was first, then Nevada, as the detailer interview underscores, and now it's beginning to happen elsewhere. It's interesting that in a state like Texas, which has um, just as large a farm-born population and just as many people eligible for naturalization, we haven't seen that. And I think that's precisely because of the weakness of organized labor in Texas. So organized labor is pretty weak around the country, admittedly. So this isn't the whole story. But other forces that are active in the Democratic Party could take a page from this playbook and try to do the same kind of mobilization. I think so there's a lesson in these pages, you know, one sort of really how to make it happen, that has to be part of the answer. Yeah, I really agree with that, the political mobilization being absolutely fundamental in any scenario. One of the, the ways to understand the authoritarian turn and its relationship to immigration is really to, to hone in on the axis of race. In the book, a number of authors tell the story of the 1965 immigration law as having vast unintended consequences. 
in a way we are living, we are living in the world that that law brought about in terms of a country that is on track to be a majority of color. And it's clear that Trump and Trumpism are substantially an effort to thwart the political maturation of that emergent coalition using whatever means are necessary, anti-democratic means to preserve essentially white power in the country. So that's the playbook. It's kind of very clear how it relates to the demographic change in the country and why anti-immigrant policy specifically is so fundamental, why the great replacement theory and all this nonsense is just the beating heart of right-wing authoritarianism today. So then the question is for us, what's the, what's the sort of response to that? And, you know, I think one heartening thing is that out of all the excesses of the Trump years, I think a counter coalition has begun to form. So African-Americans have always been principal target of racism in this country, for sure, but also, uh, I think, increasingly likely to be joined by other people of color and by many whites who were repelled by the vision of this a vision of white supremacy in our politics. So that's kind of what we see facing off now in American politics today is those two very large mobilized blocks. And for the pro-democracy forces, the multiracial coalition, let's call it, you know, from the standpoint of, of the elites and the party, the job is to deliver for people in a way that is motivational and energizing. And that means for immigrants, legalization and other reforms, but also to do things that consciously build the power of immigrant and other of color constituencies, like massive naturalization campaigns through government and so forth. But for civil society, I think the crucial thing is the mobilization politically that Ruth talked about, done by both community groups and labor unions and others, but also um, this coalition building, creating a new sense of we, a multiracial sense of we, which partly is about elections, but partly is about how people collaborate together on everyday stuff that happens in communities and cities. And I think that is a place where I see encouraging progress. I think the pandemic has also played a role here in just lifting up the profile of so-called essential workers, many of whom are immigrants and other people of color. And, you know, that has generated a certain amount of support for these issues. It's at the same time, partly because of the legacy of the Trump years, plus the lack of action on, on Biden's part, immigrants are still kind of in the shadows a little bit. We're not seeing the kind of mass mobilizations that happened like in 2006, for example. Nothing like that seems possible right now, especially given the pandemic. So that's, a, that's another thing. But I just wanted to say one other piece, which is that I think there's also like an educational challenge for progressives. When I have conversations with my friends who are almost all on, you know, the left end of the political spectrum, they're all for legalizing the undocumented, et cetera. No problem there. But they do sort of hesitate in the Haitian um, border crisis that just happened. People will say, well, what do you think? Should we be just letting everybody in? Does that mean everybody can, you know, that kind of thing? People have not thought that through because we're so used to just reacting to the right. And I think helping people understand that immigration is actually a positive thing for the United States, that yes, we should be letting more people in and not, you know, refugees in particular, but also immigrants generally. And the, the question then is who and how many and, you know, how that should be organized. That conversation really doesn't happen very much. So you thought you were saying before that like Justin Guest's essay was sort of stood out as sort of different from the pack, but that it's important to 
um, address the issues he poses. Maybe his answers aren't always the right ones, but the questions are crucial. Right, and and I think you know it's you know having been around various people in the immigrants immigrant rights community of of some sort or another, you, you tend to people don't like the sort of a line that is sort of a, a mainstream democratic line. You hear it all the time, especially in the Trump years. Immigrants pay more taxes than other people. Immigrants are more innovative. Immigrants start more small businesses. You know, there's a there. I think there's there's a tendency, especially among a lot of elected politicians, to justify immigration based on some of these kind of nice economic uh, ideas. You know, not sometimes you know people don't want to talk so much about the economic contributions of undocumented people, but certainly there's a certain model of immigrants who pay their taxes to start businesses and you know, have more education that appeals to, you know, a, a pretty large swath of the Democrat voting base. I mean, just given that that is such palatable rhetoric in our politics now, I mean, again, I, I don't want to paint uh, Justin Guest's essay as just being that perspective. I, I think it's more sophisticated than that. But um, clearly by including a perspective like that in the book, I, I, it seems to me that, you know, we don't want that your goal isn't to reject that. But but, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well about whether this, isn't this just part of the same sort of narrative we've had over over many years and decades where immigration's good just but just as long as it you know it meets some of these very narrow economic criteria you know, and not recognizing you know the, the economic but all the other types of value that immigrants contribute that's really not part of our narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I I think to have a winning, durable, pro-immigrant coalition in the country we're gonna to have to be comfortable with the fact that people are gonna agree about more immigration for very different reasons. I personally reject the idea that we, we only want people to come to the United States for the economic value that they bring as opposed to their full humanity and all of the contributions that they make and who they are as human beings. But it is also true that for a substantial portion of the country, the argument that the country is stagnating in terms of population growth, that we will have two workers for every retiree in the 2030s. And that is an unsustainable ratio for Social Security and Medicare and uh, economy. That for some portion of the country, that will actually be a compelling argument for increased levels of immigration. At the same time, I think we should be pushing very hard on other fronts it's impossible to understand migration from the Northern Triangle in Central America or Haiti without understanding the United States role in destabilizing governments in extraordinary economic exploitation that has laid the predicate for it. So the debate starts on TV with somebody showing up at the border as though none of that history existed. And we have an obligation to tell that story and to make it understood and similarly, a lot, of a lot of migration in the future, some migration now, but more in the future will be driven by climate change. And some of it from the Northern Triangle countries after the hurricane and Honduras and so on right now is climate, principally climate migration. Here's another case where the United States in a sense was the arsonist of our hemisphere, right? So we contributed to CO2 emissions. These countries for the most part have been minor, minor contributors but they are bearing the brunt of the climate impacts in the global South. What's the answer when that occurs? All of that is like new terrain in American discourse. It's gonna require the movement to say some of those initially very unpalatable things. I mean, very unpalatable things. And some of our elected leaders to begin 
to help move that along. Because if the case is simply one about, you know, the morality and meeting the suffering of people at our border, that by itself, though it's compelling to me, I don't think is going to be enough to get us to the big coalition we need. We're going to need some of this greater sense of history, of economic policy, of climate change in order to make the, the case compelling, I think. Yeah, and, and the, the, the enormous challenge that you raise in, this, in, in what you just explained here is that you're now confronting the, not just the history, but the entire ideology of American exceptionalism that basically takes as given that America can do no wrong and that whatever America does, I, either we don't look at it or it must be for the best if, if, if we're doing anything in Haiti or in Guatemala or, or anything. And, and I, I think that's, I don't know, uh, I don't know if you have more articulated thoughts than I do about how exactly you can challenge that on the level of a popular movement, because it just seems like an ideology that has been so deeply ingrained. And especially, uh, uh, it's, you know, since the war on terror over the last 20 years, has sort of repackaged that and, and recharged it. And part, that's part of why we have tr the Trumpist movement in the, form, in the form we have it now. It's interesting, though. I, I, it's interesting. I think one example is this remarkable development that's happened in a related but different area, which is the reckoning with the history of slavery in this country. And in a sense, one could argue that we need a similar kind of intellectual and political project on immigration of the kind that the 1619 Project represents to introduce this idea of structural racism. It's not just about individual practices in the moment, not just about the horses, if you will, in the case of the border, but it's about a whole history of policies that led to that, that moment. So I think we're ripe for that conversation. I think the book begins to point in some of that direction. But I also feel that you can see the beginnings of culture change. In other words, for the first time after Trump's defeat, Gallup showed more American support increased levels of migration than reduced levels of migration in 40 years or maybe 50 years. That's a remarkable turnaround. Now it's not stable, it's a, it's a moment in time, but I feel like there's an opening that there hasn't been to, to just move out of the scarcity frame. And Ruth's book, I think, Ruth's chapter in the book um, and her separate book on the topic of, um, of labor is pivotal here because the scarcity framework is another one that I think has to be replaced with something that's closer to the facts of what our actual experience are. So, so I actually think there's reason to be optimistic and some early seeds of possibility and progress on, on changing the narrative. Yeah, I, I, one thing that's incredible, and I've, I've talked to many people about this, uh, just, uh, if, you know, forgive the, the brief personal anecdote, but I did not get a single class in all of my public education that mentioned about Latin American history at all. And I'm, I, I, I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm a bit younger than both of you, but I, I don't know if it was the same in your time. I, I don't know very many people who've had that. It's something that's really astonishing really just given given where our country is and and, the, and 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 this history and how important it is to you know to the world we're living in now um, so there's, a, there's an education component to to what you're saying as well oh absolutely no I think on so many levels that's true that the you know this is a country that's famous for its historical amnesia on many fronts not just in relation to immigration but to really make sense out of this whole mess you really do need to look back in time and try to understand how we got to where we are I mean, one small example, you mentioned the war on terror. There was a lot of momentum for immigration reform in the 90s. And then came 9-11, and it all went right into the deep freeze, and we're still thawing out. I mean, 
that, you know, that's just one twist in the story. But yeah, understanding the relationship, the ways in which U.S. foreign policy has, in fact, stimulated immigration in many cases is crucial. And very few people, you know, have that under, have that understanding. Yeah. And so to, to go back just to, to um, one thing um, that just we, that we touched on a second ago, um, you know, the, these polls that show the, this pretty significant uh, public opinion in favor of immigration, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of that is due to this, you know, the, the, the singular place that Donald Trump gave this issue over his presidency. And Trump is, uh, well, very popular uh, among the right, but overall is, is, is not a majoritarian figure by any, any stretch. I, I, I think there's an opportunity there, but I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, because when you, when you look at the Democratic Party, you know, like we've said, they have a lot of the right ideas on certain things, but it seems like the one th- one thing that they're very allergic to still is really confronted, treating the right kind of as as an adversary. And I, I know in also in, in your essay, Deepak, you sort of talk about, I, I can't remember, I think was the phrase you used, popular front or generating sort of a political culture of uniting various constituencies against far-right, anti-democratic, anti-immigrant politics. The The question is, how do ordinary people and how do people in pro-immigrant movements get the message across to elected representatives that to put in place a, a vision like this, you know, they need to confront the people on the other side and to challenge the, you know, these ideologies on the other side? Yeah, I mean, this is partly why I think the role of, of immigrants and African-Americans is so pivotal in this period of history because the, the kind of recognition of authoritarianism is... It's not a it's not a shock. It's not a surprise. It's more part of the fabric of everyday life and of recent memory in those communities. So the experience with policing, the experience with the Customs and Border Patrol, with ICE, all of that is just a radical different reality than most Americans live in. And it is increasingly going to be the reality if we don't do something about it for many more of us, you know. It was no coincidence that Department of Homeland Security personnel, who were you know, obviously first tasked with caging and detaining and rounding up immigrants, were mobilized on the streets of Portland to pick up protesters, right? The connections are, are rather remarkable. The, the Homeland Security state that is first built to go after marginalized and demonized others is then used to suppress democratic freedoms in general. So I think they have a crucial role to play. You know, my fear is that the learning curve here in the Democratic Party is very slow. You know, eliminating the filibuster, uh, in the case of immigration, overruling the parliamentarian if that's necessary to get people legalized in this current bill that's pending before Congress, thinking about expanding the court, D.C. statehood, all of these sort of structural reforms that you would put first on your list, voting rights above all, perhaps, you put first on your list if you were playing a serious game against an adversary who was playing for keeps, have not been prioritized by the administration for the most part. I think there will be a rapid learning. It's going to take a whole lot of pushing for below, but it feels like a race against time because if there is an embrace of all of the tools of the state and of power to fend off the anti-democratic threat, it'll be here before we know it. So I think there's considerable reason for us to be alarmed and it requires like a level of stridency and intensity and ongoing discipline from outside the party to the party to raise the heat essentially um, that we haven't yet seen. 
and we're going to have to see if if we're going to prevail. I think. So Deepak's essay in our book makes the case that the left could learn a lot from the tactics and strategies that Stephen Miller had deployed during the Trump administration. He was single-mindedly focused on restrictive immigration moves. And really it was a comprehensive approach. I mean, the no stone unturned kind of thing. He had, he had like literally had kept lists of all the things he wanted to change in the law and went about systematically making that happen come what may and didn't really care about offending people or, you know, being confrontational, all that stuff. So part of the argument here is that Democrats have to play hard too. And they seem much less willing to do that. So one final question I want to ask both of you, uh, you know, this issue in United States politics is already, we could probably go on for another hour or two. Curious to hear your general thoughts on, on how you think some of these dynamics are, are might be different in other contexts, uh, mentions the sort of left left populist paradigm in some European, which I think is, I, I think is stronger in, in Europe than in the US today, you know, where there is a sort of left anti-immigrant position that is much stronger. Where do you see this vision in, in the US context differing from Europe? Well, let me start with a couple quick points and then I know Deepak has a lot to say about this. One is that the history is really different. There's this old cliche that the United States is a nation of immigrants. That's not really true or to nearly the same extent anyway of a place like France or Germany. I mean, obviously there has been migration to those places too long ago, but it's very, very different in that regard. People alive today in the United States, their grandparents were immigrants or great grandparents overwhelmingly. So that's one difference. And that is a helpful thing. I mean, when you point that out, that sometimes does begin a conversation about all the history we were discussing earlier. So that's one thing. But given that very different historical background, the politics are sort of shockingly similar in that right-wing demagogues in Europe also embrace the what I call the immigrant threat narrative and you know, argue that their task is to build walls and keep immigrants out of Western civilization, essentially, is the, is the, is the kind of trope. And you're right that there's some people who are more um, liberal or left on other kinds of questions who've embraced that too, although, well, that's a danger as well, but it's mostly coming from the extreme right, just like here. Um, so that's one parallel. Yeah, I, um, I feel like the, the debate that's happening at the US-Mexico border is so unfortunately similar to the debate that's happening about migrants dying at sea in uh, the Mediterranean or the recent kind of conflict between the UK and France about uh, migration across the channel, boats to push people back, so in many ways, it's quite similar. I think there's two big differences. One is in the United States, there is the possibility of a big coalition of which immigrants are a very substantial part with political standing to resist nativism in a way that is not true in some of Europe, at least. Um, and that's a huge asset the United States has. But the second difference is Europe saw the two, the two versions of how to respond to immigration with the response to the Syrian crisis. You know, one was the Hungary response and um, the, the sealing of the border and the violence against migrants. And the other was the German response. And I think it is hugely instructive that the decision to allow over a million Syrian migrants to come, while certainly there's plenty of social controversy, et cetera, one might argue has been a massive success story about which there is an increasing social consensus. 
Now, some of that is obviously due to Germany's own history, which it is responding to that, you know, exists almost nowhere else in the same way, the history of remembrance and the welcome culture that has emerged out of that. But I find it very hopeful that one could imagine building a popular movement to welcome millions of people, which is, which is what that took in Germany, that we could do the same thing here. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, Ruth Milkman and Deepak Bhargava, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the Tocqueville 21 podcast. Uh, their book, which they edited along with Penny Lewis, is Immigration Matters, Movements, Visions, and Strategies for Progressive Future. Um, it's just out uh, this month in paperback. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E. 21.com and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.